here in 1 Samuel chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 19 through 25. We read from the word of the Lord. And all the people said to Samuel, that is the people of Israel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you to be His people. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your King. Let's pray. Grant, O merciful God, that your church, being gathered together in unity by your Spirit, may show forth your great power among all people in all places to the glory of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Old Testament is a story of people because redemption is a story of people. Redemption is the story of what God has done to bring back His people to Himself, to reestablish them, to return hope to them, to answer their tragedy with His great love. We've been looking for the last several weeks at the Old Testament and how we see in the Old Testament Scriptures a story of hope, a story of peace, a story of grace, A story of God's great love and faithfulness for His people. He will not leave us to ourselves. He will come back for us. He will redeem us. And so we find in the pages of the Old Testament the stories of these great people. And we think of some of the great names of the Old Testament. We think of Elijah and Elisha. We think of the great prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. We think of Samuel. We think of Abraham, we think of Isaac, Jacob, we think of Joseph in the coat of many colors. We associate those stories with the people in those stories. Because God is about redeeming His people. The story of redemption is always the story of people. We've read here in 1 Samuel, and we are a bit um, we're a bit unfortunate in that we call it 1 Samuel. The Hebrew people in the Old Testament, they called it just the story of Samuel. 
You didn't have a first and second Samuel, you just had Samuel. Likewise, the book of Kings. It wasn't first and second Kings, it was just the book of Kings. Chronicles, the same way, you could have guessed that. Not first and second Chronicles, it was just the Chronicles. We've read here, of course, in chapter 12, it wasn't until just a few hundred years ago that you even had chapters in your Bibles. Because these pages were, were simply the story of Israel's faith and the story of Israel's people and the story of how God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, had been faithful to His people. We read here in the books of Samuel of Israel's first two kings, Saul and David. These kings, the reason this book is given the name Samuel is because these two first kings in Israel's history were anointed according to the word of the Lord by Samuel the prophet. The story of Israel becoming a kingdom is a bit of a... Um, it's a bit of a, a kind of a sad dance, so to speak. Yahweh is going to establish His people as a kingdom, but His people demand that He no longer be their king, but that they have a king like all of the other nations. Samuel having anointed Saul as king back in chapter 10. Now accuses Israel of having done great evil and demanding a king for themselves. And chapter 12 finds its, finds its place after a very interesting chapter because in chapter 11 you find that Saul has led his people into battle. He has defeated the Amorites. He has done a great thing. He's, he's been anointed. He's led them into battle. And now the people sing his praises. He's off to a great start. The kingdom has been established. The, the king has been anointed and he has been victorious in battle. And then you get to chapter 12 and Samuel begins to address the people in what would be his final national address. He reminds Israel about how faithful God has been to them as His people. He reminds them of how God had rescued them from Egypt. How God has delivered them when they've cried out to Him for help throughout the period of the judges. Has not the Lord been gracious to you? He has called you to be His people. He has redeemed you. He has rescued you. He has done great things for you. And now you have declared, we want a king for ourselves. The evil of their asking for a king is not in the fact that they ask for a king, but in why they ask for a king. It seems throughout the Old Testament that God's intentions all along was to make them to be a people, a kingdom. The problem was their motivation. The problem was what they assumed about being a kingdom with a proper king like all the other nations. They declare we want to be like the other nations, having a king who will judge us and lead us into battle. And their intention ultimately, Yahweh says to Samuel, is that 
they want a king to supplant him really as king. Samuel's thinking, man, what have I done? I've failed as a leader. I, these people, have, they're not happy with me as their leader. And Yahweh tells Samuel, it's not you they've rejected. It's me. They want to be like the other nations. See, in their minds, Israel was defenseless because of their structures. They didn't have the right structures in place. The testimony of the book of Judges, as we've said for the last couple of weeks, is that there was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And because of that, oppression came. Because of that, the other nations around them rose up and oppressed Israel. And so Israel would repent and would seek God. They would cry out for Yahweh to redeem them. And they thought, the problem is, the reason, the reason why we keep finding ourselves being attacked, the reason why these bad things keep happening to us, the reason why there's the Amorites, the reason why there are the, 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 the Moabites and all those other nations, the reason why is because we don't have a king. We don't have the right structures in place. If we get a king, then we'll be alright. He can lead us into battle. We'll be like those other nations. They're going to have, have to come up against us and our king. That's what was at issue in their minds. But in reality, they were defenseless because of their sin. That is the testimony of the book of Judges. Everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. And Samuel presses home this reality that they are defenseless because of their sin, when he tells them, if you do right, if you remain faithful to the one who has been faithful to you, if you remain in faithful covenant to God, then it will be good for you and your king. But if you do evil, if you turn aside, you'll be swept away, both you and your king. Your structures will not matter because of your sin. It's an interesting time in the life of Israel. They have been a proper theocracy. God has been their king. God has been their ruler. God has been their leader. Because God is the one who redeemed them. God is the one who established them. And now they demand a human king. Samuel is the prophet. And suddenly you have this kind of awkward division in Israel. A division that we would call a division of church and state. You have the king, and then you have the prophet. When Samuel makes his accusation against the elders of Israel, he tells them, you've done this great evil. The people cry out, oh yes, Samuel, you're right, we've done this great evil. Please, please pray for us.
And Samuel becomes an image of spiritual leadership in the life of Israel. When we look at the life of Samuel, when we look at his role in the life of Israel, we see what it is to be a spiritual leader. We see what the church is to be in its culture. We see what pastors and theologians and apologists and Christian leaders are to be. We see what the quote, everyday believer is to be in their community. We see leadership. We see strength, courage. We see one who bears the responsibility of his people upon himself. One who won't run from challenge, but will face it. We see in the life of Samuel what it is to be a leader in the way of intercession. Samuel says, Far be it from me that I should sin against Yahweh and cease to pray for you. The people are crying out, Please, please, Samuel, intercede for us. Pray for us. Bear us to the Lord our God. And he says, I'm not going to sin by not doing that. Are you crazy? One of the amazing little quirky things about the text here is when he um, when he's accusing them during his during his final statements he says look it's the harvest it's it's the uh, the wheat harvest season right remember uh, when we were looking at uh, at Ruth we noticed it was the time of barley harvest it's now time of wheat harvest in ancient Israel during the time of of uh, of Samuel During the wheat harvest, the days would get awfully dry. There wasn't much rain. And Samuel said, look, to show you, to to press into your minds a little reminder of God's great power. I'm going to pray that it starts storming today, and it will. And he did, and it did. That was what, that was what, drew out their confession. Samuel, Samuel, don't don't cease to pray for us. Intercede in our behalf. We've done this great sin. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by neglecting to pray for my people. Do you see life that way? Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for my people. Who are your people? It's like in answer to uh, John Wesley's question, who is my neighbor? He's two people. I was preaching at Praise Academy uh, this past Wednesday during their chapel service. and I, said, I, was, I mentioned Wesley saying that he's two people. And I told him, it's Tom and John. And they were like, what? 
And said, no, he didn't say Tom and John, but those two people, those two people who are my neighbor, it's the person before me, and it's the next person I meet. That's your neighbor. Those are your people. Those are the people for whom God wants you to intercede. Those are the people for whom God wants you to bear the burden of prayer. Samuel says, Far be it from me, it would be sin for me to neglect in praying for you. I will not stop. For whom are you praying? Because Samuel's statement here is not just for pastors. It's not just for theologians. It's not just for the movers and shakers of society. It's for the people of God to bear their culture in prayer. Shame on the church for not praying for the world. Shame on us for thinking it is us versus them and all we can do is fight. We should be people of prayer. We should be people who cry out to God for our coworkers, for our neighbors, for lives that we see are broken and ruined. Shame on us if all we can do is point a finger and say, man, that's messed up. Samuel shows us what it is to be a spiritual leader, what it is to bear the ministry of intercession. And he shows us also what it is to bear the ministry of formation. He continues his thought. In verse 23, he says, that I should cease, that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. In fact, he's just told them a bit. He says, look, look, do not cry out in fear. Don't, don't be in terror of God. Do what's good. Do what's right. Stop turning aside. Don't follow after those vain and empty things. They're nothing. They can do nothing for you. They can't profit you. They can't deliver you. Notice, he's teaching them. Notice also in verse 20, he says, don't fear. And then in 24, he says, you'd better fear. <laughs> oh, wait, wait a minute. Which is it? Samuel? You know, there are two different types of fear. There is the fear that paralyzes, the fear of, of terror. Samuel knows that's a possibility with that storm that he's just prayed to come on in. And then there's the fear of all. A healthy, I hate the word respect because it sounds so cheap. You know, we think R-E-S-B-E-C-T and we, we kind of get silly with that term respect. But there's that healthy fear of the Lord that the book of Proverbs says is the beginning of all wisdom. It is the foundation and the fountainhead of all wisdom. He says, fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all of your hearts. 
After all, think about the great things He's done for you. Samuel begins this ministry of formation, shaping his people, shaping their minds, shaping what they think about. Remember, God has been faithful to you. He has delivered you. He has rescued you. He has redeemed you. He has made you to be His own people and He will not abandon or forsake you. He says, because of His great name's sake, because He is Yahweh and He will make His name glorious among you, He's not going to leave you alone. He began shaping their minds and forming their behaviors. Serve Him in truth with all of your hearts. Be faithful to Him, for He's been faithful to you. Samuel begins this great campaign of forming culture among his people, of shaping his culture. And again, it is not the job of pastors and theologians. It is not the job of apologists and leaders on Fox News or CNN who bear the name reverend. It is not for them to shape culture. It is for the church to shape culture. The church has been called to form culture. Our problem is we have known for too long what it is to be the culture. We have known for too long what it is that everybody in America knows who Jesus is and everybody tries to live a pretty good life. Everybody tries to play by the rules and be fair and be kind and nice. Everyone bows their head in prayer over a meal. We've known that for too long. And now we have awakened and we realize our culture has become something else and we're wondering who are we? Where are we? What is the church? What does it mean to be a faithful church in a culture that has become very unfaithfully post-Christian? In case you didn't get the memo, your community is no longer a God-fearing, Bible-believing community. And the church is called once again to be a culture-shaping entity. Not to be the culture, but to be a subculture within that culture. To shape and form culture. To show a life that's different. Which is actually good news. That's, that offers us a glorious hope. Because it's, it, is, um, it challenges us to live as the kingdom of God in the middle of a world that lives by another kingdom's standards. We're called once again to be like the, 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 uh, like the apostles. We're called once again to live like the early church. To be something that is radically different. To be something that marches according to a different beat. To live according to a different set of standards. To have different priorities. To fight for righteousness. And not commonness. Samuel says, I'm not going to sin against God by neglecting and praying for you. Instead, I'm going to show you a different way to live. A new way to live. 
A way to live that, that pleases Yahweh. A way to live that serves Him in truth with all of your hearts. I will not abandon you, for Yahweh will not abandon you. Samuel shows us what it is to be spiritual leader in his world, in the way of intercession and formation, and in the way, finally, of confrontation. Now here's where it's not fun. If the church is called to be a subculture within its culture, then it is called to be under physicians of the great physician. You know, the the job of a physician is sometimes to tell you what's wrong. Hey, we found something abnormal and we've got to do some tests. Hey, those tests have confirmed our fears and we've got to do something. I don't imagine being a doctor is fun. Because being a doctor means you have to confront. And I think that's why a lot of doctors have have begun to view themselves as treating a a problem rather than a person. Because we don't like to confront. We don't like to say, hey, that's wrong. That's not good. Samuel's willing to call out his people because it's their lives that are on the line. Samuel recognizes within himself that he cannot just abandon his people and say, well, I told him, I already told him, I'm just not going to tell him again. Part of being willing to form culture means we have to be willing to confront culture when it is at odds to the kingdom of God. To not just be willing to play along and get along, but be willing to say, that's not the way of the cross and that's not the way of Christ. We've got to be willing to be people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who say, I'm not willing to just keep my mouth shut and say, woe is me, our culture is being lost. We've got to be willing to be people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who say, no, I'll, I'll rise up. Sorry, Atlanta Falcons fans. Yes, I just stole your, uh, stole your, your slogan. I'm not Samuel L. Jackson. I will be the church in Nazi Germany 
And I'll call out unrighteousness where I see it. I think part of the problem that the church has is we either we're not willing to do this or we only want to confront and we don't want to form culture. We don't want to get involved. We don't want to be culture shapers. We don't want to influence the industries of culture. And we definitely don't want to pray for them. We just want to hate them and point out how bad they are and how different from us they are. So if we're not willing to pray for our world and if we're not willing to show the world how the church lives, then we'd better not think we can confront the world in our hypocrisy. One thing is for certain. What we cannot do, what we must not do, what we dare not ever do is mock our culture or hide from our culture. I agree with him on very, very little. But I remember running across, I think it was a tweet from John Piper several, several months back. He said something along the lines of, it is not the role of salt to mock rotting meat. And I thought, that's pretty good. If the church is called to be the salt of the earth, it is not our job to make fun of the world that's in desperate need of salt. I think often mocking our culture is kind of a defense mechanism. We don't know what to do and we don't know if we're really willing to do it so we'll just make fun of it and just talk about how bad it's gotten because we don't know what else to do. It's kind of nervous chatter. You know? Or Perhaps even worse, we decide we're just going to hide out, hunker down and stay put, be faithful to, to, to the gospel but share it with no one. Live the good and holy life but show it to no one. I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer just a few moments ago and one of the most perplexing things about his life, one of the most, um, one of the most interesting things is that uh, he found a way to escape Nazi Germany when things were getting really bad. Some friends here in America got him, a, got him a ticket, got him back over to New York, back to Union Theological Seminary. He had been there as a student and now he's coming in as a professor able to get out of the trouble, get out of the heat. And after just a few days he found himself heading right back in his friend said what are you doing are you crazy and his point was essentially I can't hide from Nazi Germany and then try to help post Nazi Germany I can't hide from all the suffering and assume I'm then going to be able to help people who are suffering 
The church cannot hide from its culture and try to just hunker down and wait it out and hope that somehow there'll be a redemptive force then. Samuel can't say, that's fine, you've got your king, I'm done. I'm going to head on back to my house and my farm and I'm going to enjoy the retired life. You want your leader? You got him. To do so would be antithetical to his character because it would be antithetical to God's character. Just as he said about Yahweh, he will not abandon you because of his great name. Samuel will not abandon his people because of Yahweh's great name. We have been called to be people of the name. And Yahweh's accusation through the prophets as they were being carried away into captivity and exile was you have profaned my name to the nations. You have made me to look like a self-serving coward to the nations. You've made my name common just like all of the other gods. I'm no better than Baal. We must be people who do not mock our world and do not hide from our world, but who plead with God for our world and who see the fact that we have become a subculture as an opportunity to change the world. Because God doesn't call us anything small. He calls us to change the world. But He doesn't call you to do much. He just calls you to change the world. You can play that both ways. Not small, it's huge. It's not complicated, it's very simple. Change the world. Don't mock it, don't hide from it. Pray for it. Shape it and be willing to live a life that is different from it. Confront evil where you find it. Not as a self-serving hypocrite who hides until he's ready to jump out and throw grenades at the world but as a redemptive part of the culture. We should be willing to bring hope to it. Last week we looked at where is God in all the mess. This week we're talking about where are we in all the mess. Where are you in all the mess? When you look at your neighbors, when you look at your coworkers, when you look at your students, when you look at the, the other kids in the neighborhood,
we should all ask, where am I in all that? It's easy to talk about how a family's falling apart or how the world's just a big mess. How other people's values don't coincide with yours. We ought to always then look ourselves in the mirror and say, what am I willing to do about it? Curse the darkness or light a candle? Hide and mock or pray and show? Let's pray.